The second letter of Peter it's addressed to the same network of churches as Peter's first letter, and it's likely written from the same location in Rome. Peter's become aware of the fact that he's going to die soon, and the evidence that we have from early tradition was that Peter was executed by the Roman authorities during the reign of Emperor Nero. And so this letter acts as Peter's farewell speech. He begins by offering a final challenge that Jesus' followers must be people who never stop growing. And then this is followed by two final warnings about a growing number of corrupt teachers who are leading Christians in these church communities astray. First, by their corrupt way of life, and second, by their distorted theology. Throughout the letter, Peter is countering accusations made by these teachers against himself and the other apostles. And Peter's goal is to restore confidence and order to these church communities. So Peter opens by reminding these churches that through Jesus, God has invited people to become a participant in his own divine nature. That is, to share in God's own eternal life and love, which is mind-blowing. And it requires a lifelong response. To receive this gift means a commitment to developing the same character traits that mark God's own divine nature. Peter lists here seven traits to strive for, and the final one encompasses and crowns all of the others its love, which according to Jesus means devoting oneself to the well-being of others no matter their response or the cost. To love, according to Peter, is to share in God's own life. Peter then states the letter's purpose. It's going to act as a memorial of his teaching that can be passed on to later generations because he's not going to be around to give it much longer in person. So before he dies, he wants to address these objections and accusations being made by the teachers who distort Jesus' teaching and that of the apostles. Pretty good introduction, right? Uh, if you watch the rest of it, it gives you a sense of how the book is structured and how it's put together. And one of the themes that's key in Peter is the idea of promise. And so you'll see that I have called this whole series Standing on God's Promises. And I want to walk you through how I see that thread running through. It's not a thread that they pick up in the Bible project, uh, but it's one that I think is a, is a key thread nevertheless. Uh, you see in uh, uh, verse 4... It says, by which he has granted to you his precious and very great promises. So there's that idea of the promises of God. And, and, it's, and, and he gives us these promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And you go, whoa, what is that talking about? We'll get into that in, here in a minute. But I want to I stay focused on this idea of the promises of God. Because he talks about these precious and great promise. Precious meaning they're personal to us. Precious meaning they're, they're joyful to us. Precious meaning they're meaningful to us. And great, they're powerful in ways that you cannot even imagine the promises of God. And I, I love the way that Peter puts it here. Uh, and in fact, we'll, we'll see that what he says before in verse 3, what he says after in verse 5, those, those eight characteristics, I think they listed seven, but faith is also one of those. That idea that all of that is tied into the promises of God. Well, then he goes on in verse 16, and we're jumping ahead. We're going to look through the book here. In verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. In other words, the, the question, the objection that people had in that day was, Well, you're just making this stuff up. In our day, we hear the same thing, right? 
This must be a myth. This can't be true. How can somebody rise from the grave? And so they, they, they dismiss it. And he's saying, no, we're, we're not making this stuff up. And next week we'll see why. He'll, we'll answer that question. Then in chapter 2, the whole chapter is devoted to false teaching. And one of the things about false teaching in verse 19, he says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And so there's this idea of us false promises. We have the promises of God in chapter 1, and that it's not made up stuff. And then the false promises, and the false promises in chapter 2 are dealing with this idea of, uh, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, many will follow their sensuality. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 18, it says, For speaking loud, boast of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who will live in error. And so he's saying, these are error. These are false promises, and they're going to be all around you, and we have them in our day as well. That life is meaningful if you're involved in your passions, if you're involved in sensuality, if you're involved in corruption, that, that life has meaning in that sense. And so we see our world uh, that buys into that around us. And so he's saying, no, that's not the case. And, and he defends that. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 2 uh, later in this series. Well, then they're questioning God's promises in chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And you think, what? That was only about 30 years after Christ's death that they're already saying this. We're 2,000 years later, right? And he's saying, what about the promises of his coming? Jesus isn't coming. And Peter's saying, no, he, he absolutely is coming. And we'll see why God keeps his promises in that regard. And he goes on in verse 8 or 9, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And so, yeah, the, the, there... It seems slow, but God is going to do it. The promises are going to happen. And then in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a future promise. And so we look at this idea of promise, and it's carried through the whole book. It's a theme. It's a thread that runs through this book. And so I've picked up on that thread, and that's the focus of our series, is the promises of God. And I think that it's an important time for us to think about it. Uh, it's important for us to think about it in times of trial, in times of 2020, which nobody ever wants to repeat again, right? Yeah, now, now we get an amen for that, for sure. Uh, and so I want us to look at what Peter has to say about the promises of God. Because, you know, one of the things that we find is, is that we have become kind of cynical as a nation about promises, it's an election year, right? It's easy to become cynical about promises. Ever since the beginning, when politicians come along and they make promises, you listen and you're hopeful and then it doesn't happen or you roll your eyes and you become... And, and, and the, thing, the reality is it happens in all of life. That we have people around us in our lives that haven't kept their promises and it makes us very cynical about promises. We find ourselves with people in our lives, friends of ours, who make promises that they'll always be our friend. I was looking through my high school annual the other day, and I see these people with, with stuff by their, by their picture, and it says, we'll always be friends. 
<laughs> and I'm looking at it going, did I ever know this guy? <laughs> it's been a few years, but uh, you know, and you're looking at it going, oh my gosh. You know, these promises that we make and, and we think that we're going to stay close to someone and then it doesn't happen. Or somebody says, says they're going to be our friend forever and then the popular person around becomes their friend and then they blow us off. Amen. It happens, does Yeah, there's an amen for that. It happens. And so we become a little bit cynical about promises. Happens to neighbors. Our neighbors promise that they're going to they're gonna fix the fence one day. <laughs> and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and we become cynical about promises. Happens with teachers and coaches that they promise that they're going to let us play on the varsity or they're going to let us do something and then, then they don't. And we become hurt by it. We can be hurt by promises. It happens in marriages and about 50% of the marriages are more in our culture. It happens. Even in good marriages, we make promises and, and they, they don't happen. Promises by our parents growing up that they're going to be at our game. They're going to be at, at our uh, concert and we show up and, and we, we're there early and we practice and we sit down and we're looking for them in the crowd. They're not there. And we become cynical about promises. And we find ourselves struggling with this idea of promise. We want to be hopeful, but we don't want to get ourselves hurt. And so we kind of protect ourselves and begin to not be so hopeful, even skeptical. And so when we talk about the promises of God, we have all that baggage that comes to bear on that same thing, don't we? We want to believe but like those in chapter 3, we begin to wonder, is this ever going to happen? Is it ever going to come about? You know, there was uh, something that somebody said a number of years ago that was very helpful to me. And it was when we were hiring a staff person and, and uh, uh, you know, we've hired a number of them over 35 years. And, and it was when we were hiring a staff person and they said, you know, the past is a greater predictor of future performance than their promises of future performance. And it's right. A person can make promises, but look at how they've performed up to that point, And that tells you a lot about that person. And so when I was looking at the promises of God, I realized God is someone who in the past has always kept his promises. In Balaam's second oracle to Balak, he's up on Mount Pisgah and he says, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? Yes. God is a God who keeps his word. He's a covenant keeper. In 1 Kings, Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple, says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he has promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word has failed. Reminds me of Matthew 5.18. Jesus said that the word of God is going to be fulfilled to the very 
jot and tittle to the very smallest parts of a word, very smallest parts of a letter. God keeps his promises. There was a song by Twyla Paris a number of years ago. Um, I think it was popular probably back in the 80s, early 80s. Covenant Keeper was the name of the song. Here's the first four lines. It says, Covenant Keeper, I made a start. So Covenant Keeper being God or Jesus. Covenant Breaker, that's us. I broke your heart. Your word is deeper, faithful and true. Covenant Keeper, make me like you. God is the covenant keeper. He keeps his covenant when he makes promises. He doesn't lie. He's going to keep them. He's not caught unawares. There's not some sort of COVID-19 that comes along and he goes, oh man, this really blew my 2020. You know, our 2020 is blown, but not his. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's getting our attention, isn't he? He's helping us to see we can't do this on our own. He's helping us to see we've been living in this little bubble and it's burst. This little bubble of protection, this little bubble of what America used to be, this little bubble of whatever that we've been depending on, that we were finding security in, and all of a sudden we're all dealing with mental health issues just about because we're stressed like nobody's business this year. If you're not, I want to talk to you. (laughs) I want to see how you're you're appropriating your faith to God's promises because I guarantee you that it's God's promises that are going to get us through. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. God says yes to his promises. God is the covenant keeper. We can depend on him. So as we look at Peter, he's going to tell us how do we rely on these promises? How do we embrace and apply these promises to our life? Well, we need to understand something because he starts off in this book. It says, Simon Peter, verse 1, 2 Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, I want to stop right there. A couple of things that I want to point out. One is, if you look at a map of the areas that he talks about in 1 Peter, because in chapter 3, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing you. Go, okay, well, what's the first letter? 1 Peter. I mean, it takes a brilliant person to figure that out, right? Says to those who are elect exiles of the of the dispersion in Pontus. Do you see Pontus on that map? Uh, over to the uh, you see up at the top. Pontus, Galatia. We have another book written to the Galatians, don't we? Called Galatians. Very tough. So a book written to the Galatians. We have two others: First Peter and Second Peter, written to the Galatians. Um. He, he goes on and says, Cappadocia, you see that uh, down there on the right. Asia, over on the left. Bithynia, what is that, this area right here? This is Turkey. This is not Israel, right? So who are the primary, his primary audience? Even though Peter tends to reach the Jews, Paul was out for the Gentiles. This, these letters are written to a primarily Gentile audience. And he says, a faith 
of equal standing with ours. He wants them to know the ground is level at the cross. That if you're Jewish or Gentile, doesn't matter. Barbarian, Scythian, Greek, doesn't matter. Equal standing, a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, that word equal is important because in our day, there are, uh, there's another term that's being thrown around. Not just equality, but equity. You may hear that term. Equality be, means being an equal in status, rights, and opportunity. Equity means giving as much advantage to one party as it is given to another. So equality focuses on opportunity. Equity focuses on advantage. And so in our culture, in our day, there's this idea that, that those who have not had the same advantages in our culture and society need to have those advantages. And that's why you'll see some of the things that are proposed uh, in, in, uh, nationally that, that are proposed. And so you wonder, well, what's a biblical idea here? Is this idea of equality here? Well, a faith of equal standing. I think equality is there. What about equity? Giving as much advantage. He says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We've been given advantage as well as equality. This advantage is a spiritual advantage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, so our eternal life, but also our life now because Christ said, I came not only to give them life, but to give it more abundantly. So there's this idea of an abundant life that, we, that he has for us and that abundant life happens for us when we walk by faith. It happens when we trust him. It happens when he is involved and we've invited him to engage in our, in our world and in our lives and we pray and we ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This idea of godliness is this idea that I'm aware of God in every situation in my life. And not only aware, but I want to walk with him in every situation in life. Every situation in life. Whether I'm speaking on a Sunday morning whether I'm working out in my yard during the, during, during the weekend, whether I'm playing, whether I'm working, whether whatever it is I'm doing, that, that I'm consciously aware of God all the time. Pray without ceasing, we're told. How do you do that? It means an awareness of God that as you're working, your thoughts just naturally turn to God. When you're working on your computer and you can't figure it out, you can say some things, some words that maybe you'll regret. Or you can talk to the Lord about it and say, Lord, I'm, I'm really struggling here. I'm pretty ticked. As a matter of fact, at my computer, I'm ready to throw it out the window. Uh, maybe you can help me to not do that. And, and help me figure this thing out. I just put in a storm door uh, and, and I, I got the storm door in and I put it in, nice storm door. I've had this little cheap one for years and, and, and finally uh, uh, 
at my wife's urging, I bought another one, right? Nice Anderson door, and I put it in. I get it all in. There's a little gap on the bottom. That gap's not supposed to be there. And I had to pray, right? Lord, help me figure out this gap. And I was figuring out all these things, trying to figure it out. Lord, please give me insight. I know it's just a door. Who cares about a door in the grand scheme of things, right? But that's the stuff of life. Does God care about me walking with him about a storm door? Yeah, he does. Because he cares about me walking with him in all of life, in everything that I do, whether it's a storm door or whether it's counseling somebody's marriage or whether it's sharing Christ with someone so that they'll come to Christ and have an eternity with him. In all of those things, learning to live a life of godliness because I can live this beautiful godly life in front of you guys and then get home and be pounding on a storm door because I'm frustrated, right? And then the next door neighbor or somebody drives by and kind of looks at I thought he was a pastor. Yeah, I am. And we, you know, we have feelings too. Pastors have feelings too. We trust him. We walk with him. He's granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. I should never say, we should never say, I can't. Uh, you got everything that pertains to life and godliness, right? Everything. Notice what it says. Everything has granted to us all things. So what am I missing? If I say I can't, then I must be missing something. In Philippians it says, I can do most things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Don't let me get away with that. I can do some things. What? What does it say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I can do a storm door. I can share my faith. I can speak in front of people if I need to. I can do whatever I need to do. I should never have, I can't as part of my vocabulary as a believer in Christ. Never. I always can. I may struggle. I may, it's that old, those old voices, those old, as last night in our, in the marriage conference that we, we had, wonderful time, by the way. If you weren't there, you missed something special. I encourage you to join us with our next one. But he, but Matt Chandler talks about these whispers inside of us, these whispers that tell us you're no good. You can't do it. You're going to struggle. You're going to fail. And it's all these whispers, all these things speaking to us. And Jesus is saying, cuts through it and says, no, you can, because I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Believe this, not those whispers that you hear in your head right now that says, I can't, because you can, because of what he has done for you. And it says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The word knowledge there, and I'm going to give you the Greek word here because it's kind of a neat word. Uh, it's hard to probably remember, but epigenosis. You may have heard the word before. He uses the word knowledge again in verse 5. That word is gnosis. So what's the difference between gnosis and epigenosis? Gnosis is experiential knowledge that you experience something. Epigenosis is to a greater degree with great clarity. 
And, he's, and this one of great clarity, this greater degree is knowledge of him. And it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not that I can just give you a theological lesson about God. Here's all the things I know about God. He's a trinity. He's a, and, and running through the list, right? No, this word is God is my closest being in the universe that I know. That I experience him because of godliness. I'm aware of him day to day and I'm asking him to be involved with me. So when I'm walking down the street, he's with me walking down the street. He never leaves me, ever forsakes me. He's always there. And I experience him. I see his hand at work when I pray and I see an answer. When I talk to him and I'm struggling with understanding something, he gives me wisdom and he illuminates his word. I begin to see his hand because I see his hand when I see things that only God can do. And I know I didn't pull that off. God must have pulled that off. A knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature. Now let's stop there. We got to talk about that one because in our generation, in our day, there's the idea, in fact, among those who hold a prosperity theology that we become gods with a little g. And because we are gods with a little g, we can, like the God, speak things into existence. And so if I want wealth, I speak wealth and it happens. Or I speak healing and it happens. And whatever I speak, it has to happen because like God spoke the worlds into existence, I, God with a little g, can speak. And it's like, that's not right. That's not what scripture teaches that I have the ability to speak, that I'm not God, he's God, and I walk by faith. That's the way the Christian life works. It's not that I'm depending on me and my words. I'm depending on him and his power, the one who, who raised Jesus from the red, from the, from the red, <laughs> from the dead. I trust him, and he is the one who, when I pray to him, he sovereignly chooses whether to answer yes to my prayer or wait to my prayer or not yet. Or just a flat no. Partakers of the divine nature. That's only ultimately going to be and happen whenever we were with Jesus one day in our glorified bodies. We'll be like him. Paul talks about that in Philippians. That we'll be like him in that day. Paul talks about it in Galatians to the Galatian believers. And so here it's another letter to the Galatians, right? And, and Paul says, my little children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. So little by little, day by day, Christ being formed in us. How does that work? Well, he talks about it as we go on. We, I know that's what he's talking about because look what he says next. It's because he says, uh, having escaped the world uh, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, what, what reason? 
that you partake of the great promises and that because of those promises that you, you wait for and that you become partakers of, you're partaker of the divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and, with, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. That's that list of things that are all parts of us partaking of the divine nature. What are those things? Well, I put that list together. I, I did a word study on each of these, and so I gave you just kind of the, the short form of this. You might want to take a picture of that so you have the list, uh, because I didn't find it anywhere. I came up with it just through looking through a lot of uh, Greek dictionaries, not something that you probably would find enjoyable on your time off. But um, this idea of faith, that I believe the truth. I'm convicted that the truth is what God said it is. Virtue is moral excellence. So that I take the truth. Now think about this. It's not just saying virtue is not just knowing what is right and knowing what is morally excellent. I'm actually living it. How am I living it? Because I'm trusting in him. I'm living a life of faith as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live, I live by faith. And so I'm living by faith and I'm wanting to live a morally excellent life, which means that I have to tell myself stuff. God, help me not to choose this immoral thing, but this righteous thing. God, help me as I, as I wrestle with my thoughts that aren't pure right now, and I want them to be pure. Moral excellence that, that we make a covenant with our eyes, like Job said, not to look lustfully on a woman. I mean, you look at these different things that, that happen for each one of us, men, women, uh, old, young. We all struggle with moral excellence, with feeling hateful, with being angry, with all these different emotions. And we, it's choosing moral excellence in his strength, knowledge to know through experience. We can know the scriptures and just become arrogant. Or we can know the scriptures and become humble because we try to live them out and realize can't do it on my own. Self-control. I like this statement that I saw. Say no to one's body. I need to do more of that at the dinner table, right? And the lunch table and breakfast table and snacks and steadfastness, bearing up under with hope or patience. It's the idea of not letting, not allowing the circumstances to overcome you. Godliness, aware of God in every aspect of life. We talked about that. Brotherly affection, affection for a fellow believer that you care about what's going on in a believer's life and that you help them, you reach out to them in love, that you're self-sacrificing. Now I want you to see the rest of what he says are based uh, are a point to these eight things. Verse eight, for if these qualities, verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities, verse 10, if you practice these qualities, verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What are these qualities pointing to? The ones we're just looking at. These. These are based on the promises of God. These are based on 
being given everything that we need for life and godliness so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Here's what he says. If these qualities are yours and, and increasing, in other words, you're growing in them, that's the expectation, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So you'll be fruitful and effective. If whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind, having forgotten that he's cleansed from his former sins. And so this idea that, that, that we will be blind. In verse 10, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities. That you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. That should be the stirring up for us. By way of reminder, what? To know the promises of God. On Facebook, I asked people to share the promises that, that mean the most to them. And there were a number of people that responded. Great verses that they put there. Here's what I want you to do as an application of this. If the promises of God are so precious and so great that we can partake of the divine nature and that we can have victory in some of these areas, areas which most of these are listed in Galatians chapter 5 under the fruit of the Spirit. That when we walk in the Spirit, that these things will become part of our lives. That's why I think that Paul had, Peter had this list. then we need to seek out the promises of God. I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to start keeping a list of the promises of God. And then I want you to do another step. I want you to memorize some of them. I want you to memorize some of the promises of God because they are amazing. They're incredible. And they can help you in a great way, in a precious way, to become more like Jesus. Not that you're God with a little g. You're just more like Jesus every day. And one day you'll have a glorified body. I, like Peter, want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to be Captain Obvious. The promises of God. They're worth it. The promises of God. We need to stand on them. But how can you stand on the promises of God if you don't know the promises of God? There are so many incredible promises through Scripture. We need to make sure that we don't claim promises that are intended for someone else in Scripture, intended for Israel or whatever. But there are promises, amazing promises that are for us, and this passage is one of those. Because what are the promises? If these qualities are yours, you'll neither be ineffective or unfruitful. You won't be blind. You will never fall you want those kind of promises? That's what we got right here. Start here. Write this passage down. And I want to encourage you to begin to memorize the promises of God, especially some of those that are very general that you can apply to most situations. Romans 8.28 applies to a lot of situations. Romans 8.28. I just went blank on it. <laughs> right when I need it most, right? Look it up. Incredible promise when you're going through difficulties, through, going through hard times, that God will take care of you. He'll provide for you. He works all things together for good. Now remember, works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God loves you. And he's given you incredible promises and he doesn't lie about it. 
He keeps them. May we be stirred up to live out the promises of God. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, I thank you that Peter stirred us up by way of reminder, reminding us about God's incredible promises. They're precious to us. They're personal. They're meaningful. They hit us right where we need it. When we feel alone, you say, I will never leave you or forsake you. What an incredible promise. You have told us in Isaiah 40 that when we wait upon the Lord, we'll renew our strength. What an incredible promise. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk according to your promises. And Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.